very warm welcome, everybody, to this World Economic Forum panel on the global outlook. My name is Jeff Cutmore. I work for CNBC, and you'll catch me Monday to Friday for three hours in the morning doing the Squawk Box program. So hopefully after this panel is finished, if you haven't already found me or CNBC, you will reach out and do so. Good. So what I want to do here is start off this panel by engaging you, our audience, before I start to ask questions of our panelists. And I want you to help me direct questions at our panel. And the question I have for you is, are we heading into recession or not? And what I'd like from you, and let me just tell you, the room is quite dark, so most of our panelists won't be able to identify you if you do put your hand up. So be reassured and be confident that you won't necessarily be seen voting. But what I'd like to do is just with a show of hands, ask the room, the brains trust here at the World Economic Forum, the, uh, the people in the audience who are concerned or believe that we are heading into a recession, could you please put your hand up? Okay, uh, just very roughly, that feels like around half of the room to me. Um, nodding heads, nodding heads, about half the room. Right, okay. Um, let me ask you a different question. Who believes that the global economy will have a soft landing and that ultimately policymakers in our central banks and in our governments and heads of business will help the global economy achieve a soft landing? Who thinks that that is the most likely outcome? Please raise your hands. Okay. Well. This is not scientific in any sense of the word, but on a simple count of hands in the room, I would say that around half of you feel that a recession is very likely, and a small number of you are confident that a soft landing can be achieved. So I think that gives us a very good sense of the mood in the room, and that of course helps me shape my questions to our panel. And let me introduce our panel, because I've made them sit here and uh, not say anything for a few moments. And I think it's important that we bring them in uh, because they are all uh, very important people with very interesting uh, connections to the global economy. So let me start with uh, Kristalina Gorgieva, the Managing Director of the IMF. Um, good to have you with us, of course. You appear to have set the tone, almost, of this meeting uh, by talking about the confluence of calamities that are facing the global economy right now. So hopefully we will address some of those potential calamities and we will address how policymakers can best negotiate them. Uh, Francois uh, Villeroy de Gallo, the governor of the Bank of France, a very warm welcome. You're also on the ECB Council, of course. You said on Friday that our short-term priority is fighting and mastering inflation. Events have overtaken us in a sense that Christine Lagarde today has made it very clear that the ECB is now embarking on a rate hiking cycle this year, and we may even see 50 basis points at a single meeting. We will see. I love the Gallic shrug so early on in the panel. Um, Jane Fraser is the CEO of City, who forecast a brutal winter for markets, not at the beginning of the year, not a month ago, back in October of 2021. Mm. So your crystal ball was working very well, I have to say. Um, you also expressed caution about the Chinese economy coming off the boil. Mm. So that, again, was another very prescient call. Uh, and I'm now thinking about relocating my pension fund, um, given that she seems to be so accurate on what is likely to unfold in markets. Uh, and David... Uh, David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-chair of Carlyle Group. Great to have you on the panel. You told CNBC back on the 5th of May, inflation has been a problem, but it should not cause a recession. And I think we can update that view because you were on CNBC earlier today, and I think you reiterated pretty much the same point that you feel we can escape recession, as did President Biden when he was asked the same question 
Uh, so you're an esteemed company in Tokyo um, with, within the last 24 hours or so. So, so let me get on to some questions. The OECD has just trimmed uh, first quarter GDP quarter on quarter to zero or negative for most of the G7 economies. So given the mood in the room here, managing director, are we actually already in a recession in some G7 economies? And how concerned should we be about that? Uh, you scared the audience effectively, but I can tell you, you have not scared your panel. So my answer is going to be not no, not at this point. It doesn't mean it is out of question. We have downgraded our projections for growth for this year in April for 143 countries. This is 86% of global GDP. And since then, in a short period of time, a little bit like the weather here in Davos, the horizon has darkened. Why has it darkened? Well, when we did our projections, the war was already ongoing. Now we see the consequences going far and fast. In addition to that, tightening of financial conditions, dollar appreciation, and China slowing down. James' prediction, unfortunately, has materialized. So we are looking down this uh, 2022. It is going to be a tough year. We have commodity price shock in many countries. And the particular shock I want to bring your attention to is food price shock. Over the last week, because of that sense that maybe the economy is getting into tougher waters, oil price went down. But food price continues to go up, 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 up. Why? We can shrink the use of petrol when growth slows down, but we have to eat every day. And the anxiety around access to food at a reasonable price globally is hitting the roof. And I don't want to be uh, too negative at the start, but the climate crisis has gone nowhere. The digital money has hit a little uh, rough spot. Ex we expected that and it happened. Nonetheless, Think of numbers, 3.6 is our prediction. That is a long way from 3.6 to global recession. What we may see is recession in some countries that are weak to begin with. They haven't recovered from the COVID-induced crisis. They are highly dependent on imports from Russia of energy or imports of uh, food and uh, they have somewhat weaker uh, environment already. So, but we have not seen that yet. So you, you've laid out, I think, very clearly for us some of the, some of the ongoing challenges. David, why, why do you feel more confident that recession can be escaped? And is that only for the United States? Well, when I worked in the White House under President Carter, uh, the inflation advisor, Fred Kahn, uh, said that he thought we were heading into a recession right before the 1980 presidential election. And President Carter called him into the Oval Office and said, look, I'm running for re-election. Don't use the R word. It scares people. So Fred Kahn said, what am I supposed to do? I'm an honest man. So he said, just don't use the R word. Subsequently, Fred Kahn said he thought we were heading into a banana. And he used the word banana because he realized reporters wouldn't put a headline that said, Fred Kahn thinks we're heading into a banana. So I'm very reluctant to use the word recession, but let me just say that we're, we're not in a banana yet, but I think the signs are not as favorable as I would like, uh, only because the war in Russia and Ukraine is not any like, likely to end soon. If the war ended tomorrow, mm -hmm. I think the economy would bounce back. But since it's not likely to end tomorrow, I suspect that will be the precipitating factor given all the food chain and energy problems that, are, that come about because of it. So I think, I don't want to say we're in a banana, but I would say a banana may not be that far away from where we are today, unless the war ends very quickly. It's such an important question, I think, 
we should let every panelist have a go at this. Jane, how do you feel about the outlook from here? Yeah, I, I think, David, to your point about the R word, there are three R words right now. It's Russia, it's recession, and it's rates. And it depends where in the world which one is more prevalent. So in the States, it's much more about rates because there's more resiliency in the economy, in the labor market, in the consumer. The consumer is sitting there on $3.4 trillion of deposits coming into COVID, they were sitting on a trillion. So there's some buffer there to be seen if it's used wisely or not. The jury will be out on that. Uh, I think much more concerning for Europe that is right in the middle of the storms from supply chains, from energy crisis, and, and obviously just the proximity to the, some of the atrocities that are occurring uh, in Ukraine. Um, when you go elsewhere in the world, I'm just back from, uh, from being in Asia and in the Middle East, and it was wonderful to see those countries again in person. Um, they're different than they were uh, coming out of the, uh, going into COVID. When they come out of COVID, they are stronger. They're coming out of uh, the lockdowns. There's some more sense of optimism there. And I think even China is seeing this as an event that's occurring rather than a long-term trend. They'll no doubt have some uh, packages that they'll come to stimulate the economy. Food, to the managing director's point, is I think the big worry here because that could be the wild card. When people are hungry around the world and there's going to be one and a half billion hungry people without necessarily either the means nor the access to food, particularly in Africa but not only, that is a problem. We'll come back to the policy response and how we can address that, because clearly there is going to be a difference in how people experience a dramatic economic slowdown. I, I just wanted to be very clear, though, because you mentioned Europe in your answer. Are you pretty much convinced then that Europe will experience a recession? Yes. Let's take this to the Bank of I France governor. Wrong. And I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> can I... Can I bring this um, to you, Governor, because, and let me, if you don't mind, put another little spin on this. Is the EU ultimately going to drive Europe into recession by insisting that it abandons uh, Russian oil and gas at this stage, or is there an alternative? Um, so to take the European view, first we knew, we all knew from day one that this war was bad economic news, less growth and more inflation. And this is the price we accepted together to pay, to protect our values, to be at the side of Ukraine and democracy. It was worth probably paying this price. We now know a bit more about the effects in Europe. About activity, and this is why I would disagree with Jane, at least so far. Uh, activity is obviously less buy-ins at the end of last year. We had a growth in the URA of more than 5%, 7% in France, so it was really record high. But it's resilient. If you look at German I4 this morning or at Banque de France monthly surveys, and the IMF forecast for the URA this year was 2.7%. We'll see where we are, but it's still significantly positive. Uh, by the way, services are in better shape than industry, so it's an opposite image if you compare to COVID. So the main problem, at least in the short run, is inflation, without any doubt. Uh, and inflation in the URA is not only higher, even is slightly less high than in the US, but 7.4%, but it's also broader. And this is probably the main issue. Core inflation is 3.4%. And this is why we have to normalize monetary policy. Without any doubt, it's what President Christine Lagarde said very clearly this morning. Uh, there is an increasing consensus in our governing council about the start of the journey. Let, let me say one word about our aim at the end of the journey, at least in two years, 24. We will bring inflation back towards 2%. And this is not only in all our forecasts. Look at all forecasts, including from the IMF. But it's our commitment. Uh, and we, we will do it through normalization of monetary policy and not tightening. I will perhaps elaborate on that. It's a normalization. The question of growth will come back. But I would play down the idea of a short-term trade-off between inflation and growth. In the short run, our priority is clearly 
as you reminded, fighting inflation. And we will do it. So, so Governor, very clear, um, very clear answer. Uh, can you be equally clear with this answer? Um, are rate hikes in uh, July and August now a done deal? In August, we have no meeting, Jeff. September? <laughs> it was well, you good, can have an emergency meeting at any point. My side. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do you want me to elaborate? Uh, no. July and uh, no, September. But perhaps a general consideration. Uh, attention is focusing very much on the short term. When will we precisely end net asset purchases? When will we have the first rate hike? All of this is important, but frankly, if you look at President Lagarde's statement this morning, the deal is probably done because there is a growing consensus. I think that the next steps of the journey are now more important. I made a speech two weeks ago about a possible roadmap going towards neutral rate and yes, achieving 2% in 24. I wouldn't over-focus on what will precisely happen in July, September, etc. But we have a roadmap. Oh, I, I think central banks used to not tell people what they were going to do and they didn't talk about it when, after they did it. You had to figure it out by figuring out what was going on in the market. Now, since Ben Bernanke in the United States and then Janet Yellen and, and uh, Jay Powell, the Fed chairs have said it's better to tell people what we're going to do and explain what we did. And there's a, a plus to that. But the downside is once you say what you're going to do, if you don't do it, you've got bigger problems. So having said, we're going to have two consecutive 50 basis point increases in the next FOMC meetings. If we don't do that, people are going to think that, A, we have no concern about uh, inflation any longer, and that's probably not realistic, or they give a bigger increase uh, than the 50 basis points, people are going to say, oh, it's a bigger problem than they thought before. So either way, it's a difficult thing to do anything other than what you said. And so I think uh, what the Fed chairman said, it's 50 basis points, the next two meetings, I think it'd be unlikely he would change that position. 2021, we were told that this was transitory inflation. 2022, the beginning of, we were told this is transitory inflation. Effectively, the causes of that inflation were misdiagnosed, and now we're told that the right medicine is to dramatically hike interest rates to choke off demand. We were told this is a supply-side problem. How do we know that the right medicine is actually to give the European economy two interest rate hikes so far, July and September, and perhaps the two that we're talking about in the United States? Well, uh, may I? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Two quick reactions. First, you speak, Jeff, of dramatic rate hikes, etc. This is not the kind of words which are in Christine Lagarde's statement or in my expressions. I use the word normalization for a very simple reason. We are still releasing the accelerator. We had exceptionally accommodative monetary policy with asset purchases, negative interest rates, even in our cases. And as far as we are not at neutral rate, it remains accommodative. So we are releasing the accelerator. We will see if later, after the neutral rate, we have to, break, to, to, press, uh, to press the brake. Uh, and second, uh, you are again with this idea there are 50 basis points hike, etc. Uh, frankly, we, we are not there. What, what is important is, is to see this journey. Uh, and it, it's not a dramatic change in the language. It's a change in the situation. There was a supply side shock, uh, supply side shock last year. You are right. But it's why I mentioned that core inflation is increasing. Mm. And if you allow me a technical remark, in our forward guidance in the ECB, we have an important condition on underlying inflation, the third one. I think it's more and more important because if it is about core inflation, then monetary policy is relevant again. With global debt higher than it was in 2008, inevitably markets are going to take this kind of messaging badly. David. On inflation, I just wanted to add, it's probably a mistake for all of us uh, in, to comment on these things and think about these things, to have thought that you could stimulate the U.S. economy as much as we did because of COVID and stimulate the European economy as much as they did because of COVID and to think that there wouldn't be inflation coming about as a result, plus the 
very loose policies the Federal Reserve and other cent European central banks had in terms of buying securities and so forth. So that was probably uh, oversight to think that that wasn't going to produce inflation. And then when the war came in Ukraine, that compounded the whole thing. What we've learned before is that when inflation gets into the system, it takes a while to get in, but it takes a lot longer to get it out. And that's what Paul Volcker always used to say. It takes a lot longer to get, in, get, out, get inflation out of the system than get into the system. It's taken a couple of years to get it in. It's going to take a while to get it out. Shane. I think the reality is if when you're asking any of us what, what's the rest of the year going to be like, we don't know. Um, there's, certain, um, there's uncertainties, I think, that will get clearer around supply chains. So if all goes well, we're starting to see the supply of commodities beginning to outstrip demand because to the managing director's point, you have an ability to reduce down demand somewhat on the commodity front, excluding food. So I think we're getting quite optimistic that there is a path forward from the chaos we've been seeing that the supply and demand imbalances on commodities will ease up. That will help. But on all of the geopolitical and the other fronts, we just don't know. And so what we're asking of our central bankers is a very difficult thing, which is to take actions now without quite knowing where they'll overshoot or undershoot. And I think we've got to have some patience here and really have our eyes open and understanding what happens to consumer behavior, what happens to confidence, what happens in the corporate sector, and take this step by step. Well, Kristalina, I mean, one of the, one of, sorry, managing director, uh, one of the, the problems with, with this story is that um, we know that in part the supply chain challenges have now become incredibly politicized. You know, the focus very much for, for, for companies all around the world is, is looking at the manufacturing hub of China and China's response to COVID. And we've talked a lot about that, you and I, in recent uh, months, and you've given very frank views about how you think that living alongside COVID has to be the right response. But here today, we now have President Biden ratcheting up, ratcheting up the tension again with China over the issue of Taiwan. This will only increasingly politicize the supply chain story and encourage disinvestment of Chinese businesses in America and American businesses from China. How does this help with inflation? Let's go back in uh, 2021. We were all overly optimistic that having vaccines is going to eliminate lockdowns. And at that point, we didn't think that supply chain interruptions are going to play a major role. Now we know better. Supply chain interruptions because of COVID today are a major factor for the um, Chinese economy, for the Asian economies, for the world. The second thing we learned with the war is that there could be unthinkable shock that adds fuel to the inflation. And that is a broader lesson, we do live in a more shock-prone world. What is the conclusion if you are a business uh, person? Forget about politicizing, not politicizing. You would say, I have to change my view of economic efficiency to include, include supply chain predictability. Security of supplies, clearly cannot anymore be left on the team of least cost solution. And therefore, we all have to think of the years to come, whether this change in our concept of economic efficiency that includes supply security may be a more permanent factor pushing prices up. And if it is, then since you say I'm very frank, I will be very frank, then we all have to think collectively whether we can afford the luxury of fragmenting our economies even further. What is going on in this more shock-prone world should press us to seek ways in which we work more together but we draw a lesson, and I'm, I'm sure Jane would know this lesson from experience, 
that if we want our people to support us working together, we have to be less obsessed with globalizing profit and more with localizing benefits for communities and countries. So to put a positive note here, we did get a tax deal, 137 countries agreeing that there has to be a fair distribution of profits of global companies, some for the country they are generated, some for the countries they come from. And there should be a minimal tax that everybody subscribes to, in other words, more fairness in uh, the way we split benefits, and then think of how, as a world, we ought to be striving for our children, for our grandchildren, to enjoy benefits of higher standard of living. If we fragment the world, we are all going to be poorer. And one point I wanted, I was mm. <laughs> raising Please. my hand. Uh, Jane talked about the fact that dif different countries are in very different place. And that makes me go back to recession. Today, there are two countries in deep recession. Ukraine, at least 35, maybe 40% contraction. And Russia, vis-a-vis -vis our October projection, 11.5% contraction. And there are countries that are so severely hit by spillover of events like Sri Lanka or Lebanon or, or Egypt, where the pain is felt. They are in a more difficult place. But you go to the United States, and in, in the United States, no bananas. Well, David, you want to pick up? Well, two points I'd like to uh, add. One, all recessions are not equal. Um, the definition of a recession varies, and some people would say it's just two consecutive quarters of negative growth. If you have a two consecutive quarters of negative growth, it can be a mild recession. And the recessions aren't the end of the earth. They typically happen every seven years or not or so. So it shouldn't be uh, a, a great cause for alarm if it's a mild recession. Second point is that why, when all the uh, stimulus was going into the economy, did people not worry about inflation? To some extent, uh, the central bank's mission has changed. When the central banks were set up, their main mission was stable currency, little inflation. In recent years, decades, the mission has been changed a bit. It's worry about unemployment. And the concern about unemployment has gone to make central banks more worried about um, things like rising interest rates because that will produce higher in, uh, unemployment. And that's a bigger concern. That was not a concern 30 or 40 years ago when they, they were really only worried about currency and currency stability. So that's a big factor. So when interest rates started, when, when, when we had the COVID problem, we could have increased interest rates and increased unemployment, but the, Fed, the Federal Reserve recognized that its mission was to kind of keep unemployment low too. Um, mm. well, yeah, let me come back at you then. What, what do you make of the capital market reaction that we've had to the actions that the central bank has taken so far. It, it seems to me that um, there is, you know, as we near this um, uh, correction territory well, for the S&P, there is an argument um, here that the markets have overreacted. But what, what's well, your impression? Remember when Ben Bernanke once said, maybe at some point we'll slow down quantitative easing, there was a so-called taper tantrum. And all of a sudden the market acted like they can't believe he was saying that. Uh, this time, we have, the Federal Reserve has been saying very carefully, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell you in advance, no surprises, no tantrums, please. And the markets overreacted. Why? Because markets are nervous and markets like to overreact. It's like the markets have overreacted to what the Fed is doing. I can't control the markets, but I think they have overreacted a bit. Well, let but me, they let have me, also, let, also been well, complacent. Uh, hang on a second. Markets I'll, just, I'll bring you in in just a second. I know everybody wants to get in on this. But David, let me just press you for a moment because uh, markets have overreacted and we think about the markets as the S&P and the Dow. If you look at the technology stocks, some of them are down over 70-80%. It looks like 2000's tech crash no. all over again for some companies no. in that space. Well, not, it's is not this, really is that. this not 2.0? In the crash that occurred in 1999, 2000, 2001, you had internet companies with no revenues 
obviously no earnings. They had nothing but a business plan in some cases, and those companies shouldn't have gone public, let alone maybe been getting any capital. Now if you've got a company like Netflix, which has 250 million subscribers, it may not have been worth what it was worth in the market a few months ago, but it's certainly worth probably more, in my view, than it's currently traded for. Markets overreact, and when they overreact, that's a chance for good investors to go in and say, there's an overreaction and buy at the bottom. Well, there's, for every Netflix, there's a Peloton or another business. I mean, I, you know, I'll push it back at you because there are a lot of people who look at the, uh, the way that Wall Street has behaved over recent years, the whole SPAC phenomena, the way that the private equity community have thrown money at moonshot ideas. Has this been an irresponsible phase? And is this part of the reason why we're now going to have to take our pain? Well, I'm not defending Wall Street and everything that was done in the SPAC market and all the valuations put on all the companies, but some of the companies that were highly valued and people made fun of for a while, like Amazon. Take Amazon. People made fun of it in 1999 and 2000, said it really shouldn't exist, and obviously it turned out to be a great company. A lot of these companies whose values have gone down, now, gone down recently are still great companies, and maybe the value is overreacted uh, by the market. I think some, there's some great buys there. I don't think it's all of a case where we 1999 and 2000... Uh, now, SPACs is a different situation. That may be a phenomenon that may, might, may, the, the, may not come back again. Anyway, sit, sitting on a, um, a bank that sees a lot of these flows and activity globally, I, I think one of our, our observations in the U.S. is it's actually been remarkably orderly. Yeah, around, amongst the investors. They have not sprinted to the door the way they have it with the world financial crisis when that crash happened um, and where we were in 2020. We have seen a fairly systematic takedown and change in asset allocation. Um, the fixed income markets, um, when we look at issuance, have been incredibly constructive. We haven't seen problems of companies or governments, indeed, being able to access the markets. And debt issuance has been identical to 2019 as it has been this year. So I think it's important not to, not to confuse order and orderly shifts to the changes that David's talking about um, with some necessary corrections that occur. Um, and from our perspective, Frankly, what uh, Chairman Powell is wanting to have happen, which is an adjustment in the behavior, and in the States, it's not only that the inflation, but it's adjustment in risk assets. We're seeing that occurring in the equity market, the credit market. There isn't so much strain yet. We've seen some in commodities. We've seen a bit in high yield, but this hasn't been the catastrophe it could have been. Governor. Uh, first, I want to reassure David about Central Bank's mission. In our case, ECB, at least, it remains very simple. We have a single primary mandate, price stability, full stop. So our in, the, in, the United States, in the United States, it's uh, changed. Uh, I said it at least yeah. uh, from the ECB standpoint. But can I come back to what Kristalina said about the supply side? Because I think it's extremely important. To put it in a nutshell, there are two significant changes this year. First, inflation is back. Mm -hmm. and this is why we will normalize monetary policy and we will deliver. And second, we are not allowed to forget about growth, but the policies are not the same. If you look at the last 10 years, it was mainly on the demand side, especially during COVID, thanks to monetary accommodative monetary, accommodative monetary policy and yes, fiscal policy. These two support policies will have less space for obvious reasons. And now, Growth is linked with supply-side policies, be it trade, and yes, rules, and avoid fragmentation is possible, education, investment, climate change, etc. And we shouldn't forget this part of the agenda. Inflation is priority number one short term, supply-side is a priority for the middle term. Can I introduce a last reflection on that, Jeff? Growth remains a positive word probably for most of us in this audience. But if we look at our, to our fellow citizens, unfortunately, it's not the case. If I would oversimplify, for our older fellow citizens, growth is over, and for our younger citizens, growth is dangerous, mm. because it's a threat to climate, etc. Mm. So we must win this battle, and shown, this was our discussion in the G7 last week with Kristalina and others. 
we must show that growth is still possible thanks to modern supply-side policies and that it is a condition to have fairness and climate transition. Wow. But this is a battle which is absolutely key. We haven't mentioned globalization, and globalization has been a deflationary um, situation. It really helped keep inflation now, down. Now, because people are challenging globalization and because supply chains are being brought back into various countries, it's, it's probably inflationary. And that's one of the reasons we have more inflation now, because people are worried about globalization um, for other strategic reasons. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to this globalization story because I've got another angle around the financial aspect to this. But I, Governor, I just wanted to come back to you because I have a quote. You responded to uh, a view expressed, I think, about the way um, that COVID money was handed out and the uh, approach that President Macron's government took. Uh, many people see debt as limitless and cost-free. You said such a such a seductive double illusion is our greatest danger today. And yet we hear governments now talking about a fiscal response to the unequal pain that is being felt by inflation. We, we've just had overnight from the States, I think a $40 billion spending plan put forward. The commission is now talking about suspending the fiscal rules until 2023. The commission is talking about raising money in the debt markets for the green transition, the energy transition. Who knows where that money is going to end up? They raised money in the debt markets to address some of the pandemic impact. Um, it, it seems to me that no one is listening to your words here, that governments feel that they can continue to spend and raise money in the debt markets, even as interest rates are rising. Something's going to break, isn't it? Uh, to put it in a nutshell, because it was a long and sophisticated question. But uh, these were exceptional circumstances, COVID, which required exceptional answers. So I supported in France and in all our countries, Kristalina, the so-called whatever it takes. But the illusion that it will last forever is very dangerous. Yeah. Two years ago, the debt had almost no cost because we had zero or even negative interest rates and no limits because everybody was borrowing. But now debt has a cost everywhere in the US, in Europe. It has a positive cost. Uh, if you look at the 10-year US, it's 3%. If you look at France, it's 1.6. So it's a dramatic change. And second, it has limits because it cannot be exceptional circumstances forever. This is why we should care about sustainability and I believe that we can find other ways to, to finance these supply changes, Kristalina mentioned, associating also private resources and funding. In our case in Europe, it's the so-called capital markets union. So not everybody should rely on fiscal policy. Yep. I mean, you know, unfortunately, it always seems to be an exceptional circumstance, doesn't it, when governments raise money. Uh, to, to address problems in the economy. David, very quickly, oh, well, and I want to bring the managing director in because she's waited a long time to respond. You, but. you raised a very good point on debt, which we hadn't talked about. The United States has now $31 trillion of debt, 31 trillion, about 129% of GDP. Uh, the only Western European country with higher GDP uh, ratio is Italy. Uh, so we have a very high debt ratio. And the truth is we've been paying this debt for a long time with very low interest. As interest rates rise, it's going to eat up more and more of the budget. Right now, we're spending 7 to 10% of our budget in the federal government on interest. It's going to rise to the teens and higher than that. And so that's a big problem, which I think is a bigger economic problem in the future than almost anything we've talked about. Managing Director, let, let me come to you because I want to ask a slightly different question, but it does relate to everything we've talked about. Um, the World Economic Forum's own economist survey um, threw up an, an incredible statistic. I think of the 50 economists that they had um, in this survey, 90% of those economists expect average real wages to fall across low-income economies. Now, back to this question of the appropriate policy response, how do you protect those people without worsening inflation, but guaranteeing they have access to food, to the security they, they need to, to live a good life? From the um, very beginning of the pandemic, 
we have been ringing the alarm bell that there is a dangerous divergence in economic fortunes between advanced economies, middle-income countries, low-income countries. Remember the statistics. Advanced economies port 28% equivalent of GDP in support for their households and their businesses. Middle-income countries, 6%. Low-income countries, 2% of a tiny GDP. This is first time in the last decades when poor countries, rather than catching up with those better off, are falling further behind. Why should we all in this room worry about it? Because it breeds instability in these countries. What can be done? You're asking the, the, the right question, uh, Jeff. What can be done is first for richer countries to stick to their pledges to support low-income countries. Two, for institutions like mine to, in relative terms, step up support for those who most need it. Last year, we did $650 billion new allocation of special drawing rights. This year, we are doing, for the first time, a massive transfer of special drawing rights from countries like France that gets it but has a great central bank uh, <laughs> and, and a policy, very, very sound policy. They don't need this so much. So France committed 20%, other countries followed. We are now moving this money to be able to support exactly what you're flagging, the tragedy of poor countries, not often not by fault of their own, but by exogenous shocks, the COVID and now the war, to be able to sustain these shocks and, and secure you know, the livelihoods, the lives of their people. I would add a third point that is so critical for our conversation. We must improve the way we cooperate, but not throw the baby with the bathwater. Globalization has served the world well, except that we made a big error to pretend that it has worked equally well for everybody everywhere. It did not. So concentrate on fixing what needs fixing so these countries can have a chance to be part of global value chains to offer their people uh, better opportunities. And this is why we are here in Davos, to do exactly that. Jane. Oh, um, yeah, you're welcome to applaud. Please do. Please do. Um, Jane, I just wanted to come back because, I mean, um, what, what David, um, in, in a way, implies with this hike in interest rates is there's, there's going to be an even more intense competition for global capital. But I think we're now beginning to see the start of real deglobalization of the financial economy because the sanctions against Russia have just told anybody that has dollar reserves they can be seized at any time and your access to the SWIFT system for payment settlement can be closed off at any time. We've had a salutary lesson on how easy it is to cancel countries in, in, in monetary terms. Now, I don't want to pick on you, but I know that since you've been at City, you've now talked about exiting 13 markets. That's the kind of message that uh, that, that sends, that's the kind of act that sends a message that increasingly you don't see a value in being in some of these international markets as we see this deglobalization of the financial economy. So one, the competition for capital is going to increase, which is going to encourage countries to put up interest rates that can't afford them. And two, companies like yours that are relocating out of those economies are taking your business away from them. 
So we're not exiting 13 countries. So we, I, read, I read it wrong yeah, in the uh, report. We, we, we open our bank stores in 97 countries every day. We operate 160, and we intend to stay so that way. So you are, you are not selling, selling the retail selling, operations in I'm Mexico, in China, I'm exiting in Russia, a, I'm exiting in a consumer. Uh, I'm exiting a consumer business line to focus on the institutional clients that we serve in those countries, precisely because we see such growth in globalization. Our bank moves $4 trillion of volume a day in foreign exchange, cash management, and trade. That number is going to be $10 trillion before we know it. It requires significant investment. So I think like many industries and many different companies around the world, we all have to invest in digitization, in scaling up, in being able to operate with the scale and speed of a digital world. To bring that back to globalization, what are, the, what are the threats and what are the opportunities, therefore, from what we're seeing? Clearly, there are threats of fragmentation, splintering. There's been some weaponization of not just financial services um, through sanctions, but trade flows and other pieces. So it's changing the nature of globalization. I think one of the critical pieces is what, what do we need to solve to tackle exactly what we're all talking about here? And it picks up a bit of what David said. It's the technological advances that will enable us to move supply chain resilience. It takes someone five to 10 years to move supply chains dominated by China to other parts of the world and build this out. These are problems that are going to take long. It's a Herculean task to get the global economy to greenify. I mean, it's a complete overhaul of the global economy that's required. These are big challenges. They're sources of important resilience for globalization going on. And we're all going to have to be institutions with a brain and institutions with a soul and operating both of those together to solve these problems. It can be done, but we've got to work on this on long-term problem solving. And it's exactly what David said. Your, your question pointed out a very good point. There are three financial consequences, leaving aside inflation, to what's happened in Russia. One is the banking system. It's clear you can shut people out of the banking system. People hadn't realized you could do that so easily. Second is the confiscation, you could argue, or freezing of somebody's assets. Nobody had ever thought you could take the dollars in somebody's foreign reserve account and freeze them. And that's a big issue that the Chinese are obviously going to have to think about because they have $3.2 trillion in foreign reserves, and they're probably wondering, could this happen to us? And the third issue is the centrality of the dollar. Uh, the dollar is still almighty dollar. While people say it's you know, another, best, another reserve currency might come along. It's going to be a long time before there's another reserve currency. But people are worried the dollar is now so powerful and so important that other countries are going to say, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. Well, the governor, the, the intriguing question, really, that I don't suppose you'll answer, but I will ask you, because you have talked about the value of the euro, is did the euro just get too weak to the dollar and that's why the ECB is responding, because the euro is now at 2017 levels against the greenback, and that is importing inflation into the eurozone. Uh, Are you responding to the euro? I will try to answer your question. Uh, no, no, Jeff, we have no uh, exchange rate target, obviously. We, we have an inflation target, but exchange rate matters. Uh, and I repeat it here because imported inflation can put us away from, from our target. But our monetary policy is not targeted for exchange rate purposes. Can I add one thing on, on globalization? Because there is a risk of deglobalization or fragmentation. Uh, we, we should be careful about that. I, I agree with Kristalina. Obviously, there should be common rules, common values, but can I plead that at least in payments, we shouldn't have a fragmented world? Because if, David, if it's a fourth financial consequence you didn't quote, it would be a catastrophe, including for diversification of flows, uh, as the one you mentioned. Uh, we could have geopolitical fragmentation in payments. We could have also private fragmentation. By the way, this could be one of the very few good news of the last weeks or months that we said clearly in the G7 that we appealed for a quick, global, strong regulation of crypto assets worldwide. 
if we can take this opportunity, we will protect investors and we will preserve the world from an unnecessary fragmentation. Um, Christine Lagarde said they're worth nothing. What, why are we regulating an asset class that has no value? Uh, because there are several investors around the world, including many young people, who have lost much in recent months. And the illusion, and frankly it was an illusion, that you can have an investment with a high reward and low risk, it should be regulated, explained. There are also anti-money laundering issues. Uh, there are some countries like China which intend to prohibit crypto assets. I think it's more innovative uh, and more innovation friendly to say we regulate them, but it's an, emergent, it's an emergency question now. And again, we, we, we said it last week in the G7. I strongly hope we will have this regulation in Europe this year. We can have it in the US and elsewhere. We will have done our job. Uh, Managing Director, I want to come to you on this, but David, very quickly. On crypto. Yeah, we, ni 19,000 right. cryptocurrencies. Are, are any of them worth anything? Well, crypto, um, the younger generation says the older generation has devalued the, the dollar or the, the value of the currency, so maybe something else isn't so bad. Secondly, if, you put, if they put a smaller percentage of their net worth in, it's not likely to bankrupt them. But the most important thing that's coming out of this, I think, is this. Whether crypto is worth X or Y or Z, to a lot of people, it doesn't make a difference. The government can't get it and figure out what you have. So a lot of wealthy people who want to hide their assets after the Russian situation will say, all right, I'll put 5% or 10% in some basket of cryptocurrencies. The government won't know what I have. They can't get it, and I can always get access to it. So I think people are not going to be dismissing these cryptocurrencies because it can be hidden from the government, and that's what people want to do in some cases. Since you brought that up, and uh, the managing director mentioned the agreement on a global tax deal, if the Republicans win in the midterms, is that tax deal dead? Well, whether they win or they don't, I think the tax deal isn't going to happen. Global tax deals always sound great, but they'd actually, getting them implemented is very, very difficult because somebody always kind of breaks the system. So I'm not sure even if the Democrats were to win the House, all of a sudden the global tax system that we've talked about will come into being. I think it has some good sense, but getting a global tax system is one of the hardest things to do in the world. And getting all these countries to agree on a, on a certain minimum rate, I think it's going to be very difficult to do. Managing Director, you can come in on any of these topics. Yeah. On, on this one, of course, it is very difficult. This is why for a whole decade, we would be in meetings, Francois and me, and there would be discussion about a tax deal. And I frankly would switch off because I know nothing is going to come out of it. But now there is a renewed sense that there has to be more fairness and that taxation matters. And if we are not able to fix it, then we would be all poorer because we would be more fragmented. And that gives a bit of, of, of a chance for a tax deal. Maybe it would be somewhat modified. Okay. Maybe you're right, David, and nothing is going to happen. Uh, but in my lifetime, this is the best moment we have had. And it is on the basis of wanting to have a world economy that works better for majority of countries well, and people, I, not just for the few. I agree with you. It's a good thing. I applaud people that have worked on it. But my experience is that what motivates humans and all beings, species, is one, um, staying alive, so, you know, eating, uh, shelter, uh, reproduction, and tax avoidance. And tax avoidance <laughs> is one of the great motivators of human life. And I just worry that it won't be able to be implemented yes, so well. Uh, look, we can talk about that all night long. because We have three minutes. Adam Smith, going back to the father of the market economy, what did he say? What do we need for a country from, from a mess to turn into a prosperous country? We need peace, low taxes, and rule of law. So I'm all for low taxes, but I'm against income from poor countries being sucked into rich countries, leaving the problem you asked me about unaddressed. And okay. can I say something about uh, Very digital? Brief. We can Very go quickly. a little bit longer, I'm yeah. told. Okay. The, the, uh, uh, one big uh, responsibility for all of us is to actually explain to people what is what. What is central bank digital currency? What is stable coin? 
what is the differentiation between real stable coins and non-stable stable coins, and what is crypto? We haven't done our job. Uh, when we look at stable coins, this is the area where the big mess happened. If a stable coin is backed with assets one to one, it is stable. When it is not backed with assets, but it is promised to deliver 20% return, it's a pyramid. What happens to pyramid? pyramids? Eventually, they fall to pieces. And that is where regulation, uh, Christine is talking about this segment, but regulating the, the uh, stable coins, ensuring interoperability of CBDCs, and recognizing that Bitcoin may be called coin, but it's not money. All of this we need to work on. Um, Governor, very quickly, see if I can get along the line very quickly. No, very briefly on that. First, I agree 150% with Kristalina. By the way, you have an excellent panel at six on CBDC, so don't miss it. Ah, uh, yes. And no, I only wanted to bring good news hopefully, on this tax agreement. Mm. We could have good news on the European side, and believe me, having unanimity of EU27 is not that obvious, but we could have good news till June, and then the good news might cross the Atlantic. Uh, and, and, and I think there is a sense of common responsibility. What is at stake with this crypto regulation, with taxation? It's not bureaucracy, it's not red tape. It's giving our fellow citizens the feeling mm. that globalization can be fair. Mm. And if we miss these two opportunities, there are examples, mm. but very good example. If we miss these two opportunities, we will have missed something much more dramatic. Because here in Davos, or in this room, we are in favor of globalization, but we must show that it can be fair, green, and bring more social justice. So let us take the opportunity. It's a burning political question. Uh, Jane, you wanted to come in. Yeah, so the, if you look at what's happening in the world, we're unbundling from what was the old institutions of the world financial order, and we're now rebundling around new digital architectures that are largely born digital. So there's a disconnect between the two. And I think to the point we're talking on crypto or we're talking on all the different dimensions in the world, the imperative is that we bring with that the safeguards, the independence of institutions, and some of the software to make sure that that new system around these digital architectures does fulfill the promise and the opportunity they can afford for inclusion, um, for uh, tackling the countries that are having challenges here. But it's going to require a lot of brain power and thought rather than just uh, economic opportunism to make sure they work. So we love the technology, not sure about some of the crypto um, uh, look, products we, as an example. Uh, it says time out on the board, but I'm going to grab a couple of minutes just to wrap up because it's always better to finish these panels on a generally positive note, yeah. I find. And we've talked about a lot of the challenges here uh, and that confluence of uh, pot potential uh, calamities that we're, we could be facing. So, so maybe if I could just leave each of you with the opportunity to say in a, a few moments, um, what is the most positive thing that policymakers could do to make sure we have an easier ride going forward than perhaps some of, some of the messages from the audience have suggested we will have? I would say over the last 25 years, we've had at least three crises that are worse than this. The bubble burst of the early part of this century, the COVID problem, and the Great Recession. They were all far worse than where we face right now. And I think the, the people in the, responsible for the government and the economies recognize the challenge we have. People are on top of it. And I don't think it's going to be the crisis that we've experienced in the last 25 years in any of those three instances. It'll be a mild banana if there's a banana. Jane. <laughs> Build long-term resilience and thinking in the longer term. Let's get the government policies for climate change and the framework we need in place for the longer term, the same for healthcare for the next pandemic, and the same for the economic resilience that we need and the social resilience. We need some more long-term policies, long-term planning here. Governor. Uh, my positive message would be that democracies are not that bad. <laughs> Uh, and, and we had God. no, but we, we, we had an impressive proof. We reacted together 
stronger, quicker, and more united than expected to the war. And look at what happened to two non-democracies. They didn't, we, we have painful debates, divisions, but they didn't avoid very heavy mistakes, probably China for its COVID strategy and Russia for its Ukraine invasion. It's a good lesson. Managing Director. Uh, the uh, overlaying uh, crisis, crisis upon a crisis, uh, they have taught us a very important lesson. Think of the unthinkable. Pandemic, stopping the economy, unthinkable. War in Europe, until it happened, unthinkable. How many more unthinkables are gonna come? And the positive is that now that we know then this concept of resilience, resilient people, educated, healthy, with social protection under their feet, resilient planet, one that we care about to pass to the next generation in good shape, and resilient economy that is more than just the banking sector, labor conditions, how we work, all this matters. And I, and I honestly think very positively about us coming more mature and therefore more able to deal. Only one problem for me, David, I would never think of banana the same way as I did before. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> on that very positive note, let, let me wrap up the panel. Our panelists have been terrific. You as an audience have been terrific. Please thank them for their contributions here. Thank and thank you, everybody that's watching at home or in your office. I hope you've enjoyed this event from the World Economic Forum in Davos. <laughs>